0: Basically, the pharmaceutical company um, had hired um, educational companies and public relation companies to do their marketing campaigns. And they had things um, like a scientific publication strategy. They had a patient education strategy. There are many prongs to this campaign for one drug.
1: The array of options available to pharmaceutical companies to advertise their drugs is incredibly broad and the amount that they spend is increasing, with some reports saying up to 60% in the last five years. In most countries, there are pretty strict rules to limit the ways in which pharma can spend their advertising dollars. But the WHO guidelines, which have informed many of those rules, are now 30 years out of date. A new analysis on BMJ.com, Ethical Drug Marketing Criteria for the 21st Century, proposes some ways in which those guidelines should be updated. And to discuss, I talked earlier to two of the authors, Lisa Parker and Lisa Barrow, from the Charles Perkins Centre in the Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Sydney. Lisa Parker, for a start, hello. Hi Duncan.
0: Hi.
1: Thanks for having us Thanks for joining us. And Lisa Barrow. Hello.
0: Hi Duncan. Two leases to deal with.
1: <laughs> Luckily you've got different accents, so that makes life easier. So when I first sat down to read your article, I realised that I didn't think or I didn't know that WHO had any influence over pharma marketing. I thought it was all done at the country level or, or maybe the regional level if you think about the EU. So can you take us through what the WHO's actually done in that sphere?
0: Well, this particular document we wrote about is called the Ethical Criteria for Drug Promotion. And we think it's incredibly important because it's a a normative standard for WHO. And what that means is that it can actually uh, influence regulation in different countries and it can actually serve as a floor for what regulation should be in a country um, where something might not Exist and so uh, the ethical criteria are have actually been approved at the World Health Assembly, uh, way back in 1988, and that's an actually pretty strong normative standard. So it does mean that countries can turn to those ethical criteria when they're developing different policies around drug promotion. And in Australia, here for example, we have a um, you know a well developed regulatory system, but the WHO ethical criteria are even um, cited. By uh, our regulatory system um, in terms of regulating drug promotion.
1: Mm. And it's um, important to say that the WHA, the World Health Assembly is the way in which WHO member countries actually influence um, the WHO. So this is kind of a join up of of all the countries uh, around the world who who agreed on on this this basis for pharma marketing.
0: That's right. And so there was an extensive period of consultation, um, you know, over a period of years, actually. And when the ethical criteria were finally uh, adopted, they had to get the majority of the member states uh, at the World Health Assembly.
1: Now, as you said, the guidance was last updated in 1988, so 30 years ago. Um, Why is it you've been keeping an eye on it?
0: Well, we're very interested in um, all sorts of uh, improvements in normative standards at WHO, for example, improvements they've made in the development of guidelines over the years or improvements um, in their policy on drug donations, which we've commented on a few uh, years ago. But what's interesting about the ethical criteria for drug promotion is that drug marketing has really been evolving since 1988. And so we just think it's absolutely critical right now to look at these ethical Criteria and make sure that they're adequate and that they cover uh, all the different types of drug promotion that are occurring now. And so, you know, we think the ethical criteria are really, really uh, important. Um, We don't want them to go away. Uh, We would just like to see them strengthened and become more comprehensive.
1: Mm. Um, And to both of you, um, you know, what's your background in this? Why are you personally particularly interested?
2: Well, my background, Lisa Parker, um, I'm a clinician, so I work um, with medicines every day. And um, like many of your listeners know the importance of, um, of getting the drugs right for the patients and for the community. Um, but I've also got a background in ethics. So I'm really interested in the ways that um, societal values um, lead these kinds of conversations and these kinds of discussions and how that Um, guides, the kinds of policies that we um, adopt around these sorts of topics.
0: I have a very complementary background because I've been doing research over the last 20 years on commercial influences on health related to all sorts of corporate influences, not just the pharmaceutical industry, but I've been particularly interested in the empirical evidence around uh, pharmaceutical industry influence on research and how research is used in policy and in... in, um, in fact, how research standards might be uh, influenced by by corporate interest, and so in this case, um, you know research can be also be used as um, drug drug promotion, so we have a long history into looking into that
1: mm. and um that'll come up when we we talk about some of the solutions that you've suggested uh, in a little bit as well um but before we get onto that, I want to talk more broadly about marketing um for so marketing. Pretty much all marketing, I'd say, is about getting us to buy something that isn't necessarily the cheapest available, but it's expanding features of a product um, that might make it better and might make us want to pay more. And kind of as a society, I think we've decided that that's that's fine. It's ubiquitous anyway, um, and perhaps it's even good because you know certainly it's the mechanism by which some things like. You know, papers are funded or or public service broadcasters or, I don't know, Facebook or or all those those tools that we use every day. Um, So what is it about the pharmaceutical industry that you think is different? Why should they be restricted in a way that the other industries, car industry, I don't know, mobile phone industry, whoever it is, aren't?
2: Yeah, uh, look, you're absolutely right, Duncan. We've got marketing everywhere and we we see it and uh, respond to it or not all day, every day. Um, But I think it's no um, secret that health is a special case, Um, that um, health is something that affects us all and affects us all individually and as communities. And health is extremely well Um, regulated um, which reflects um, our societal recognition of it being a special case so there's a lot of things that you can and can't do in um, healthcare that you could do for instance if you're trying to sell cars Um, and I think that that's okay that's um, that the reasons for that are perhaps historical we've got a very long history of um, people selling tonics and uh, people behaving in ways that are not in the best interests of the public, and uh, this this initial document from 1988 reflects that. And I think um, I think a lot of people would be very comfortable with the idea that that we just keep on top of the the new marketing tactics that are happening in um, medicinal drugs.
1: And I suppose the 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 fallout from you know, drugs are, are potentially worse than if buying the wrong car or, or getting the, the wrong mobile <laughs> so, phone. So
2: there's, there's a lot of concerning uh, and negative impacts that can come from drug promotion. And we've talked about this um, in some detail in the paper, but I guess just to summarise, you know, the obvious ones are the negative impacts that can occur in health. Um, so so people can be mistreated or overtreated by um, by people um, receiving misleading messages about which drug is the best drug uh, for certain conditions, um, and people can be undertreated because uh, expensive drugs can be promoted at the um, and, and use up all the resources that um, needy areas uh, could do with. But as well as those negative impacts on health, we're we're concerned that that i suppose like many types of promotion misleading um, promotion in the drug context can cause a lot of um, cost issues in a society um, can potentially undermine individual autonomy if um, we are all exposed to highly persuasive advertising then there's no secret that it works and um, our own um, ways of thinking um, become influenced in a misleading way and it, it can impact on health justice and uh, and contravenes issues about honesty which is such a kind of integral plank of health. So I think there's a lot of reasons why, um, why guidance and regulation in drug promotion is really important.
0: And I think what's really at the core of this as well is that like WHO, we think that uh, pharmaceutical promotion is a public health problem. It's not just, you know, an issue about uh, personal choice of a of a product. It it has these much broader uh, public health implications that Lisa's been talking about.
1: Yeah, so it goes beyond that sort of individual choice and, and ability to to well, decide on, on one's own um, actions and and goes into a a, a broader much broader category um now as we said at the beginning the uh information the the guidance was last updated in 1988 and things have changed a lot since then um you know for a start we have the internet and 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 things like social media so is it that sort of technological change that you think is is the biggest thing that um the guidance needs to get on top of
0: Well, I think a lot has changed, and and really it's because we've learned a lot more about uh, how the pharmaceutical industry has been marketing their products, because we've had uh, transparency databases now on payments from pharmaceutical companies. We've had uh, analyses of internal industry documents that have come out from lawsuits. We've had uh, whistleblower cases. And so, you know, traditionally, uh, and and back when the uh, uh, ethical criteria originated, uh, people were thinking about things like journal advertising and patient education in terms of uh, pamphlets um, and maybe, you know, directly sponsored education or uh, research symposia sponsored by pharmaceutical companies as way to market uh, products. But since then, we've learned that all of these have really uh, progressed to other uh, means so, for example, um, you know, journal advertising now has is really uh, the kind of advertising we're getting is is on social media. It's not your traditional uh, journal advertising in terms of uh, publications created for research. Uh, it's it's not just drug industry-sponsored symposia. You know, we know about um, ghost-written articles for which we actually have a lot more policy now, at least from journals. Um, and and we know about, uh, you know, other ways of directly producing uh, articles. But, you know, what's next? What's next in the terms of the industry's publication strategy? We need to be on top of that. It might be uh, blogs, for example, that accompany um, articles. And, you know, patient education, it's not just about pamphlets anymore. It's now um, there are nurses who come into um, when a patient goes on a new drug. Uh, nurses who are paid by pharmaceutical companies uh, meet with the patient. They um, tell them about the drug, but they also monitor their adherence. They send them reminders, Um You know, they they might uh, tell them a lot about the benefits of the drug and not much uh, on the harms. So there's other ways that these um, traditional ways of marketing are are changing. And that's why we feel that the um, ethical criteria need to be expanded to capture, you know, types of marketing we haven't even thought about yet.
1: I mean, on that, looking at your article and looking at things that... Even back in in nineteen eighty eight, um, WHO was trying to mitigate for, but you know, going further into to the things um that you talk about that are happening now or have come to light that have been happening for some time. It occurs to me how sophisticated the pharmaceutical industry has been and how far ahead of the curve they've been in in the ways in which they do advertising. So they're, you know, they've got key opinion leaders, and we now see the Kardashians with, uh, you know, makeup on on Instagram or or whatever happens to be They've just been, it seems, ahead of the curve. So trying to stay ahead of them must be particularly difficult.
0: Yes. And I think that's why, you know, we can't anticipate everything that might come along when, you know, I did uh, some analyses of internal um, industry documents on gabapentin a number of years ago, and it was a real eye-opener because uh, basically the pharmaceutical company um, had hired um, educational companies and public relation companies to do their marketing campaigns. And they had things um, like a scientific publication strategy. They had a patient education strategy. There are many prongs to this campaign for one drug. And what really struck me about it is um, the, the um, PR companies that were doing this campaign had, quote, measures for success. And they actually would provide the pharmaceutical company with these measures of success. And um, the measure of success was increase in prescriptions for unapproved indications of the drug. Um, And this was a drug called gabapentin, and we've written the papers about it. And so what's interesting is, uh, you know, people say, oh, wow, well, what's the evidence that pharmaceutical marketing influences anything well, the pharmaceutical companies that are paying for it, they're demanding that evidence uh, from you know the people they hire, and those people have to show that it increases prescriptions of their products.
1: I suppose that's why when you've put in your your ideas for what needs to change and and what needs to be included in the guidance, it's really wide ranging and and I think quite hard hitting, at least I'm sure the pharmaceutical industry will will think that. So it's things like, prohibiting industry gifts to individuals or groups. So that includes things like meals and travel costs. And and I think, interestingly, um, political donations you've got in there, um, banning free samples, um, reducing or banning industry sponsorship of education, um, or indeed even scientific studies, um, restricting links for journal editors, which is of interest to us, and banning promotion of of whole classes of drugs so things like antimicrobials um you think shouldn't be uh advertised or marketed at all so um you know what are you trying to do there why are you going in so so sort of broadly and and, and deeply maybe
2: So yeah, look, we have talked about a lot of options. um, And and look, these, uh, as I'm sure you know, are not all new ideas. Most of them have been floated around and talked about um, in journals such as the BMJ before. So I guess the the, um, point of this article is to try and collate them together and to give them some ethical um, justification for these kinds of suggestions. And look, they they might be tough, but um, we've seen uh, a lot of um, poorly behaved marketing activities over the last few decades, and I think uh, having much stricter and firmer criteria might help to delineate actually what is and what isn't acceptable. So using sort of words like gifts should be modest doesn't seem to have had the desired effect. Um, so banning gifts might actually be a lot more productive. Um, I would say, though, that I, I, I wouldn't suggest uh, completely eliminating industry funding of educational symposium or um, medical research. You know, I think um, industry, the pharmaceutical companies um, have a lot of money and a lot of people feel very strongly that they have some social corporate responsibility to turn those profits back into society and uh, i guess the issue that we have though is uh, that the educational events and the research can be quite strongly biased if the companies are driving them and funding them themselves so a lot of people have talked about other ideas such as well Percentage of profits should go into a central fund that can then be allocated where the allocator is separate from um, the industry who's providing the money. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to try and um, still allow industries to fulfil their social responsibilities and for public still to get some benefit out of um, the money that they're prepared to put into education and research, but to remove the um, high risk of bias that currently sits there.
0: Yeah, and we've linked this broad range of options we've uh, given to the ethical principles that we articulated, but we've also um, focused on options where there is some evidence uh, behind it. So, for example, uh, meals. Um, De Jong has done a a lovely study in the U.S. based on transparency uh, data that showed that um, even... Uh, very small payments uh, to physicians um, and payments that might be a lunch or meal worth about 12 US dollars, even those uh, small payments are associated with uh, changes in their prescribing patterns. And so, you know, there there's also evidence um, behind these recommendations.
1: Mm. I suppose they wouldn't be doing it if the marketing didn't work. And so it's it's worth tackling.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean, actually, that's why I really like the... Um, you know the evidence uh, from the internal industry documents because it shows exactly that that you know um, they're they're working on marketing campaigns that increase prescribing
1: as you said yeah I've seen a lot of this um, talked about before, but one thing I haven't seen is the idea of banning marketing of of a whole range of drugs, so in as you said um, antimicrobials was one of them um, do you think that's that's in particular Particularly important. I suppose it is important to the WHO. We know they care about that.
0: Yes, I mean the antibiotics are interesting because they uh, there's there's actually you know no studies that have shown that they're being uh, marketing marketed inappropriately uh, that I know of. But uh, as you said, that the WHO has a, a strong uh, platform now to. Uh, a decrease antimicrobial resistance, and it has many arms, and, and one of them uh, recently was on the essential medicines list. Uh, antibiotics have got listed in, in different ways, and there are some that should be, you know, absolutely restricted, so, you know, used um, only in emergencies when everything else fails, and so not not everyone should have access to these uh, antibiotics, and I, I should disclose I've, I've chaired the Essential Medicines Committee during these discussions, and so, uh, anti- antibiotics are something where um, there's really a global need to uh, control how they're used uh, in order to decrease resistance and also to encourage uh, pharmaceutical companies to um, produce new antibiotics that actually nobody uses. And so that's, I mean, that will go contrary to, um, you know, making a profit from, from selling your drugs. But the world desperately needs uh, antibiotics that are held in reserve. Yeah, I
2: would agree with that, um, and I think um, that, we, you know, you wouldn't, we wouldn't have this kind of special issue concept lightly. I mean, this is really an important topic and one that the WHO and uh, countries around the world take very seriously, and, um, you know, I think it's definitely making a very strong point to suggest that promotion is part of the problem and um, regulating promotion is part of the solution
1: now my last question is um the world's changed quite a lot and and the sort of the role of the who um the influence of it um, might seem to be a little bit less now so do you think that they the who wha is still the best place to to start tackling this
0: we we've discussed quite a this quite a bit uh, and and you know education has often been uh, put forth as uh, a solution for uh, tackling drug promotion and we certainly think that is a key part of the uh, you know a- equation uh, Physicians uh, and any type of prescriber, uh, patients, they should uh, be educated, they should know how to critically appraise information, they should be skeptical about it. But education just uh, isn't enough um, to actually uh, diminish the influence of um, all of these various types of marketing because uh, some types people are still frankly just unaware of or they don't realize that they're marketing. And so You know, we really do support, as Lisa said earlier, um, the need for regulation uh, in this area. And again, the the WHO normative criteria provide a floor for what that regulation uh, might be, and we would hope it would um, be influential uh, to the member states. Look, I think um, there's
2: a lot of Uh, avenues to address this topic I think um, the WHO still carries enormous normative authority um, and people take notice of what the WHO has to say so I would be very keen for them to uh, get behind our suggestion and make some changes to these uh, ethical criteria and I would hope that they would have influence not just in uh, developed countries such as Australia and the UK, but also in developing countries where um, they might not have as many resources to make their own guidelines uh, and regulations and be very keen and um, enthusiastic about um, some templates that the WHO can provide for them. And I would say that the WHO, these criteria are, are regularly used um in an academic sense as well as an educational sense and um, upholding legislation, as Lisa Barrow alluded to earlier. There are a lot of um, commentaries on uh, drug promotion that reference the WHO criteria as the um, as, as the, as the floor and of accepted standards. Um, so they're certainly out there, and I certainly think they um, still carry a, a lot of weight.
1: Mm, definitely. I, I can see the... As a baseline, as as something of which to measure, what's actually happening against it, it is useful to have. Um, well, Lisa Parker and Lisa Barrow, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today.
2: Thanks so much, Duncan. Right. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Lisa Parker and Lisa Barrow talk about WHO guidelines to restrict pharmaceutical advertising, and the article "Ethical Drug Marketing Criteria." for the 21st century is available now on bmj.com that's all for this podcast we'll be back soon finding about new research which suggests that when a test is ordered may be as meaningful as the results we'll also find out what forced migration can tell us about diabetes patterns subscribe so you don't miss out on them we're on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts from For our full back catalogue, have a look at bmj.com slash podcasts. Hundreds of episodes, all available for free. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.